I recently met somebody for the first time and the first question they asked me after learning my name was, what's your favorite dinosaur? Now, I did find the question a bit odd, but I answered them anyways. I said, that's easy, it's a Dilophosaurus. Now, I found out later that my answer was a determining factor on whether or not they wanted to be friends with me. You see, if I answered with, what kind of question is that? That would have said more about me than it would about them asking the question. They were trying to see if I was playful at all, because they knew I could be serious. You see, for them, my answer was a kind of litmus test. We use that idiom, litmus test, as a definitive way of knowing something. It's a marker that leads to certain conclusions. There's a meme going around on the internet that says, before you marry somebody, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet, just to see who they really are. <laughs> There's truth to that. I get litmus test questions every Sunday at the parish when people come for the first time. I've been asked if I'm an affirming pastor of the queer community, if I'm pro-life, if I'm pro-Israel, if I'm pro-Palestine. The questions are trying to get to the heart of a matter that's important to the person asking the question. And I know that when they ask them. And we all use litmus test questions, whether we call them that or not. We have a litmus test question for good friendship. We have an unconscious litmus test for loyalty. We have one especially for love. If you were to ask a child if their parents loved each other, most likely they'd say yes. But if you ask them how they knew that, what's the definitive proof that makes you sure? They may say, well, they're wearing rings. But that merely says that they got married and spent $25,000 on a wedding. And they chose the chicken option instead of the roast beef. That isn't really a good litmus test for whether or not they're in love. The litmus test for their love would be the way their love is expressed. The way they love each other. The way they make each other feel. And the way others feel around them. It's something that affects the whole of who they are. So, what's the litmus test for spirituality? Or for faith? Is it church attendance? Tithing records? The knowledge of scripture? No, none of that. In fact, you could score high in all those areas and be an atheist. The real question is, what have you come to discover about the divine? About God? About yourself? And has what you've discovered affected the whole of who you are? You see, I meet a lot of people interested in spirituality but not organized religion. I get their apprehension, totally. So I ask them, what does your spirituality look like? And many don't know how to answer the question. I've discovered that for a lot of people, spirituality is really just an idea. It's something they can talk about, but they don't really know how to express it. They don't know how to practice that idea. And so for many, their spirituality is only hypothetical. But you see that ideas that aren't expressed are only and always only will be an idea. Ideas don't feed hungry bellies. They don't care for the sick. They don't deal with our anxiety. They don't deal with our fears or our shame. You have to put legs to those ideas. You have to find a new narrative, a way of telling the story that leads to life and hope. This is where the disciples, or sorry, the disciplines and practices become really important in our lives. Not as an end, but as a means, as a vehicle to take our beliefs somewhere. A while back, I used an analogy in a message called Blanket. It was inspired by a quote by um, ACDC roadie Barry Taylor. He says that God is the blanket that we throw over mystery to give it shape. I love that. 
I'm going to use that quote again, but I'm going to slightly alter it because I find the analogy helpful. That our spiritual practices are a blanket that we throw over our beliefs to give them shape. The way we talk, the way we practice, the way we engage with the world is a blanket that we throw over our beliefs to give them shape. Otherwise, they're invisible. And not just for others, but for us too. This morning, we are continuing to sit with James, the stepbrother and early follower of Jesus. We are reading portions of a letter that he wrote almost two decades after Jesus' death, almost 2,000 years ago. James has been putting into practice the ideas he heard from Jesus himself, and he's discovered they have teeth. They are worth building your life on. And so he writes down some of these, these ideas, these thoughts, that are these important truths. This was a letter that he wrote to early followers struggling in their current conditions. And so James sends them a letter with around 14 big ideas that can all be traced back to the teachings of Jesus, specifically the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. This week's big idea comes from what we call chapter 2. Of course, in James's original letter, there were no chapters just big ideas. Here's a little bit from chapter 2, verse 14. He writes, Now what use is it, friends, for someone to say they have faith if their actions don't correspond with it? Could that sort of faith make anyone whole? If a fellow man or woman has no clothes to wear and nothing to eat, and one of you says, Good luck, I hope you'll keep warm and find enough to eat, and yet give them nothing to meet their physical needs, what on earth is the good of that? Yet that is exactly what faith by itself, not accompanied by action, is useless and dead. And a few verses later, James summarizes this whole argument in a final sentence of his wisdom teaching here with this line, As the body without the spirit is a corpse, so faith without actions is also dead. Wow, he is blunt enough here to make us think that he's trying to say something important. You read a passage like this and you have to wonder, what is the issue that James is addressing here? It must have been big enough that it made it into this letter. It's important that we read the Bible curiously like this, that we ask questions. I often struggle when someone wants to believe the Bible just because the Bible says it. Well, I'm going to interrupt that thinking right here. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible isn't an entity that can speak. It's a collection of letters, of stories, of poetry that were written by individuals who felt they were inspired by God to write something down. So it's more accurate to say, James says, not the Bible says. Now that change in thinking alone is enough to infuse personality into the text. It's our job to respect that and to ask, what is it that James feels inspired by God to write about here? And is it possible that God might inspire me through his words? Now I'm trying to imagine what kind of thinking James is trying to interrupt. It seems there must have been people who were possibly saying that they were followers of the Jesus way but for whatever reason, didn't feel they needed to demonstrate that in any way. Now, to be fair, I don't really think that people were necessarily saying that their faith had no expression, but instead that it didn't need one. 
I think that's what they were saying. I think the challenge must have been people who possibly believed that they could have faith without it affecting their behavior, without it affecting the whole of who they are. That's why they could make excuses for maybe behavior that just wasn't very loving, that their faith didn't need to have to be expressed for it to exist. The example James uses here is extreme, isn't it? If you see someone naked or hungry and simply say, be well, go in peace, you haven't helped diminish despair, but instead you've added to it. In fact, you didn't even try. It must be implied that the person has the ability to help in some way, and the issue is they just don't feel any conviction or obligation to do so. James's example isn't chastising people for not solving the circumstances of poverty or scarcity. James is upset with the person who isn't concerned about the circumstances of others, especially in his illustration of people who find their way into your life, whether friend or stranger. I think the heart of this is simple. James feels that to have faith in Jesus, it desires to affect the whole of who you are. It desires to influence not just on a Sunday morning, but Monday to Friday, not just nine to five, but 24 seven. I think this is the heart of what he's talking about here. Being a follower of Jesus is a lifestyle, not a club membership. The word Christian is a description after all. It means Christ-like. It's not and never was intended to be a title or a name. It was meant to describe a people that were like Jesus. Now, and, and this isn't meant to be overwhelming. It's meant to be freeing. This is actually a transformative idea. But I come back to the fact that James the wise, James the just, is so concerned about something he's observing that he feels he needs to challenge some thinking to a better way. What's interesting is I think the whole letter becomes a metaphor for this very idea. This is the one, of mo- one of the most pragmatic letters in the whole of the Bible. Most of Paul's letters are about how we are to think about certain things. But James is all about how we should be living in response to what we've come to know. Many scholars believe that James and Paul didn't see eye to eye, especially around these ideas, and that this letter is just uh, James provoking Paul's orthodoxy with his own orthopraxy, right thinking with James's right living. I don't care to get involved in that conjecture, but instead I want to ask, what can I learn from James here in this portion of his letter? Is our faith in God somehow connected to who we are in the world? Is our connection to the presence of God connected to our presence in the world? Does it desire to be? You see, reading this letter makes me ask, what part of Jesus' teaching on the side of that mountain that one afternoon has stuck with James to the point that he's passing it on here? Once again, James doesn't need to quote Jesus repeatedly for us to know that he's picking up what Jesus was putting down. Jesus' fingerprints are all over this letter because they're all over James's thoughts and ideas. Perhaps he's remembering Jesus's teaching about a tree and its fruit. Jesus told a story to warn the disciples that there are some who aren't what they seem, but you can recognize who someone truly is, Jesus said, by the fruit of their lives. No good tree can bear bad fruit, he'll tell them. Maybe James is referencing the proactive nature of the golden rule, 
to deliberately treat others the way you yourself hope to be treated if you were in the same position. Perhaps he's thinking back to when Jesus said that they will know you're my disciples by your love. Not by how much you know, not by the matching tassels on your robes, not by how much time you spend with me or where you sit around the table I'm eating at or what your favorite dinosaur is, but by the expression of your care and kindness extended to neighbor and stranger alike. I think James sees the wisdom in helping people remember that true faith begins in our hearts but can't be contained there as just an idea or even just information because what saves us is the transformational nature of faith, not the informational nature of faith. It's not what we know. It's what we're doing with what we've come to discover. You see, something beautiful happens by how we treat each other by how we speak to each other, by how we hold space for each other, and not just others that will see God at work in our life, but we will see that God is at work in our lives because of how we treat others. How we speak, the space we hold. You see, loving other people is the secret second half of an equation that unlocks how to do the first. When Jesus teaches that the most important thing you can do is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and to love your neighbors, you love yourself. Loving people is the secret second half of that equation that unlocks how to do the first. We actually learn to love God by loving others. I know many people struggle with that. The disciple John will write a letter in, uh, that, that will be found in our Bibles, 1 John chapter 4 verse 11 and he writes that since god so loved us we also ought to love one another isn't it interesting that the way we're to respond to god's overwhelming love for us john writes isn't to love him back it's to love each other he writes that since god so loved us we also ought to love one another the response to God's love for us is love in us. God's unconditional love for us desires to produce the same in us. And that is the heart of what James is getting at. Wisdom is only information if it isn't practiced, if it isn't applied, if it isn't expressed. And you can know a lot about Jesus, but not know Jesus. And at the parish, we spend more time on the teachings of Jesus than we do on the teachings about Jesus. Both are important, but it's the teachings of Jesus that will change our lives. How do I know? Jesus tells us this himself on the side of that mountain. When he finished teaching, he reminded everybody to take what they've heard and live it. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he ends the Sermon on the Mount with this. He says, don't be the person who's always polite with me always saying, yes, sir, and that's right, wise teacher, but they don't follow my teaching. These words I speak to you are not mere additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They're foundation words, words to build a life on. If you work the words into your life, you are like the smart carpenter who dug deep, laid the foundation of his house on bedrock, so when the river burst in its banks and crashed against the house, Nothing could shake it. It was built to last. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, 
You are like an ignorant carpenter who built a house but skipped the foundation. When the swollen river came crashing in, it collapsed like a house of cards. It was a total loss. James knows the beauty of wisdom, but he also knows the folly of not practicing it. That a faith, a trust in Jesus, is so much more than mental assent. It's not about checking boxes, because for James, following Jesus is a lifestyle. It's a lens by which we see everything else. So I don't think he's saying that it's impossible for someone to trust Jesus and not have it affect every aspect of their life. I think what he's saying is, if it isn't affecting every aspect of your life, it's because you're not letting it do what it truly desires to do. I think more than anything, it's James just trying to wake people up to the power of what they've already know, but haven't found a way to express it, to practice it. This is a good reminder for me. I talk about Jesus a lot. I talk about faith a lot. It's easier for me to preach than it is to live it. But Jesus didn't come to make us smart. He came to set us free. And that freedom comes when we allow our faith to influence every aspect of who we are. And if we allow Jesus' teaching to guide us, those who've truly embraced who he is and what he's about, and who have decided to believe him, not just believe in him, then the litmus test for a vibrant spirituality is love. And without it, you only have death, even if it's dressed in a suit and tie.